Hey, keto freaks, this is Carl. Do you or someone you know have trouble focusing? You know what I'm talking about. You sit down to read something, try to figure out your monthly budget, write that novel you've been putting off, or maybe you just can't seem to do one task at a time. Well, you may not know this, but I'm a musician as well as a software developer. Programming is a job that requires focus, long periods of uninterrupted work. It's hard for them and for you. I've created Music to Code By. This is music, yes, but it's specifically and scientifically designed to promote focus. Studies show that when math students were exposed to Baroque music between 60 and 80 beats per minute, they did better with comprehension and testing. So I created more modern music that is neither boring nor distracting, but falls within that tempo range. It's just the right mix. I also made the pieces 25 minutes long. That correlates to research that shows we all get brain fatigue after 20 or so minutes of hard focus. The result is thousands of happy customers. Now, you don't have to be a programmer to reap the benefits of music to code by. It has been known to soothe restless pets, calm fussy babies, and even help autistic kids relax and fall asleep. Listen to some free samples at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. In February of this year, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In that time, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. And when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. And we share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. We're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. Nah. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. Right, and you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to cook sure and we love to eat. Yeah. So we share some of the great food we eat on this diet in every episode. Both of us share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. Yep. So let's start podcast number 20, the big fat surprise. Yeah. Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Actually, we do have one from the first show that we ever did, uh, and it was discovered thanks to a comment in our mailbag. So should we um, jump straight to mail? Mail! 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 So this one's from Mandy Chavis Buchanan, mm -hmm. and, and she says, just finished 
listening to the first couple of the Two Keto Dudes podcasts. In one of the episodes, it was mentioned that if you have only a few pounds to lose, the ketogenic diet wasn't for you. Wait, what? Hmm. Personally, I have to disagree with that statement. I've been eating a ketogenic way of eating for five months. Hmm. Yes, weight loss was a major factor. I have gone from 158 to, to 134 pounds. Even though I am not trying to lose much more weight, the other benefits of a ketogenic diet are amazing enough to keep me going and going. The mental clarity, the hormonal balance, and the energy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as someone that has only a few pounds to lose, I say ketogenic is absolutely for me. You know, I think it was me that said that. And yes, it was early on in my education about this. And you're absolutely right, Mandy. Uh, we have since learned that there are so many benefits of the ketogenic diet. You don't have to be obese in order to reap the benefits. It seems like nutritional ketosis has been our natural metabolic state for thousands of years. And how can you tell someone who only has 10, 20 pounds to lose that they should continue eating, you know, crackers and cookies and all sorts of crap uh, and just try to take the fat out? You're absolutely right, Mandy. Our mistake, probably my mistake, and uh, we have since come full circle on that issue. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to add an errata to that show to indicate that that's no longer what we believe uh, because I certainly know of people who've lost half their body weight and are now within the normal BMI range who stay keto because of all of the other benefits. And yeah, of so course. For, for them, it's an ongoing way of, way of life, really. Rather than a diet for losing weight, it's become naturally how they fuel their metabolism. And I think, you know, going back to what was going through my brain back then, it's that I know obesity because that's what I am. And so, you know, I, I don't know as if I had any advice for somebody who didn't have a lot of weight to lose. Well, that was also your, your second week, right? So yeah, you, absolutely. You were, still, you were still learning a lot of the, learning the ropes. So that was interesting that we were able to capture that phase of somebody's journey mm. on our podcast, where most podcasts are run by people who are experts who've been in ketosis for 10, 20 years. Yeah, they forget this stuff. Yeah, this is one of the few podcasts where we've, where we've captured the experiences of somebody who was in their second week. Yep, absolutely. All right, so another message we got on our Facebook group, which, by the way, you mm -hmm. can get to at fb.2keto.com. And this is from Stina Lean Erickson. Uh, so for whom would the keto way of eating not be ideal or should we just convert the world? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, there are a lot of people we know that it works for. Um, according to uh, Tim, Professor Tim Noakes, there's yeah. probably no more than about half of 1% that might be unable to do keto because of some underlying genetic cause. And it could be that but there are some people who just cannot metabolize fat. Mm. Uh, they're not good at fat, uh, beta oxidation. And so they really have to have a high carbohydrate diet. And if you're in that category, your doctor should have, you know, should, should advise you. But it's very rare is what we're saying. And there's, oh, it's most right. likely yeah. that you're not in that category. Yeah. Also, according to Dr. Joseph Kraft, about 15% of people can probably eat as much carbs as they want without becoming deranged. So <laughs> for, for maybe one in six people, Whilst you can certainly can do keto, you don't have to do keto to get you know to to, to fuel yourself safely. But for the other five sixths of uh, of the population, um, the more carbohydrate they eat, 
the more deranged they become. Mm-hmm. And for some, it, it can happen in, in a decade. And for some people, it happens five, ten decades, you know, right. like down, down the track. And for some people, pass away from something totally different before all of these problems with, uh, with sugars build up in their, in their body. So, but according to the, uh, UCLA, there was a projection done just recently where they showed that 52% of Californians are either pre-diabetic or diabetic, either diagnosed or undiagnosed. So mm. it's quite, certainly a, a majority of people probably should be on a low-carbohydrate diet. And-, and the experts believe that the actual number of people who are somewhere on the craft insulin spectrum and metabolic syndrome spectrum is more like 75 to 80%. Wow. Yeah. So- Chances are, if you're overweight in America, it's because you had too much American food (laughs) (laughs) or Australia. Too many carbohydrates or Australia. Yeah, the Western (laughs) world pretty much has this problem. Yeah, we have pretty much the same diet in Australia that you guys have in America. We just have maybe slightly smaller portions, but it's not by much. Yeah. So the third uh, comment that we got was from Marty Scala, mm. also from a Facebook group. Yep. And uh, this was one on fasting, and uh, this is interesting. So Marty says, so I decided that I was going to start intermittent fasting today to kind of further my path into adaptation. Right. Had a nice fatty steak and broccoli for dinner about 20 hours ago. Mm. I've really only had a couple of hunger pains around the 18-hour mark, but those subsided after a little coffee and some salt water. I do feel different, though. Something is weird. (laughs) Not a bad kind of weird, but definitely weird. Not sure how to explain it. I'm going to start eating only dinner during the work week, I think. (laughs) Marty, you are spot on. And when I read this, I I recognized this because the last time and the time before, it was about 18 hours when my cravings kicked in. And, you know, this is a a 65-hour fast. This has been my pattern that I do. And I swear to God, like clockwork, 18 hours later, I need some salt and it goes away. It it lasts five minutes and that's it. That's the only craving I had. But I remember the first time I fasted, I had several cravings. Right. The interesting thing is once you get by that 24 hours, Mm. it's like 18 to 24 hours is an area where you're going to get a couple of cravings. Yeah. Once you get past that 24 hours, Smooth it's sailing. jam. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, it's just, you feel so good. You don't want to eat. Exactly. Why would no, I stop? That's right. Yeah. And you, you, you inherit this amazing self-control. <laughs> you know, that's all I can describe it as. And as we discovered in the Eating Patterns show, there seems to be a really good pattern with our group. And what I mean by our group is just the people around us who leave comments and send us email and talk on the Facebook yeah. group. This pattern is more than keto. It's keto plus intermittent fasting, but it's, you know, take a couple of weeks, eat as much fat as you want, get fat adapted, go through the keto flu, get on the other side of that. After you're on the other side of the keto flu, that's a good time for you maybe to do a dinner to dinner fast. Yeah. And if you can, if you can get through that, you can go for 60, 72 hours, whatever you want. You go through that. uh, Now you have options, right? You can eat. Sure. One meal a day, you can skip meals, you can, you're, you're, you're burning fat. And so fasting becomes more of what you do 
Well, fasting plus keto. Yeah. Nobody says you should fast and then, you know, binge. Uh, who would yeah. do that? You, you, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have, you don't you don't have to fast really. I mean, you, you, to to be in somebody's asked us today, you know, do I have to fast to be to to, to be part of this group? No, you don't have no, to. No, no, no. But it it works really well together. So and especially when you hit anything. that plateau like around 3 weeks we discovered, mm. you hit a plateau, yeah. most People give up on low carb after the, the keto flu if they get it. And another group yep. gives up after a plateau. They say, well, I'm done now, right? I've stopped yeah. losing weight, <laughs> so I'm done. Yeah. Going to go have yeah. a, some ice cream or something. And then you're done, really mm-hmm. done. But you, <laughs> but you do a fast, either a one-day fast or a 60-hour fast. You can get through that. Now you yeah. just boom right through that plateau. We see it over and over and over again. Absolutely. What kind of control? Oh, it's awesome. So the last uh, message from our mailbag is from Henry Fernandez. And this is a question about macros. Mm-hmm. And he says, I've heard several times here in similar groups when somebody is asking for advice on stalling, the common answer is to add more fat. Mm. If your macros are good, 70, 20, 10, wouldn't it be more beneficial to keep macro ratio and eat less fat and protein instead of upping fat? Or a second option, exercise is a bit more to burn the stored fat. Mm. It just seems to me if you up your fat and then take in too much without burning, wouldn't it just store as fat, ultimately not losing and, not, and causing you to stall? Well, it's funny because we don't really know what happens when you stall. We don't know if you're actually burning your fat and adding water or, or storing glycogen or really, really that we don't really know, do we, Richard? No, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of hypotheses about it, but it, this idea about macro ratios uh, is really not a description of what is on your plate. They're a description of where your body gets its fuel from. Right. So nutritional ketosis is eating incidental carbohydrates, under 20 grams of carbohydrates, mm. Adequate protein based on the size of your body mm. and fat to satiety. So the fat that you that your body burns, that 70%, it can be fat that you eat or body fat. If you're fat adapted, right? If you're in ketosis, right. it yeah. can be body fat. But if you're just starting out, and this is why we don't recommend people fast when they're when they're just starting. You want to get your body used to burning fat first. Yeah. The, the, the problem when you fast and you're not fat adapted is your body goes into a starvation mode and mm. it basically says, look, I, I need energy and I can't get it because I'm not very good at mobilizing fat mm. from adipose tissue to to muscle cells that are going to need, that need energy. And so we're going to make you hungry. We're going to dial down our optional uses of energy and mm. we're going to basically move you into a, into a state of using less energy. And that is ultimately um, not good. going to be – it's going to fight against you in the process of weight loss. So I don't know if we ever said eat more fat when you stall, but um, some people do say that. I think they say eat more fat if you're hungry while you're, while you're doing this. But if you stall, like I said before, we've seen this, Richard and I have seen this over and over again, you do a fast mm. and that yeah. busts you through a stall. You're absolutely right, Richard, about where you get your fat from. It could be on your plate and it could be from your body fat. Yeah. If you've got plenty of body fat, then you shouldn't feel hungry. So you won't need to add much to your plate. Your body should automatically lose weight until you get low enough that your insulin level causes your body to defend against further weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. People who have naturally lower 
average insulin will plateau at a lower weight than people who have high average insulin. So, for example, my fasting my, my fasting insulin rate is 20 micro units per litre mm. and Carl's is 14. Mm. So, in theory, Carl will plateau at a lower point than I plateaued at until I can get that down. And I've, I've got strategies to do that. But if you ever feel real hunger, you know, uh, not just, hey, I could eat that, but I really feel like eating something, then your body is likely running out of energy. So you should eat more fat so that your body doesn't start shutting down optional energy consumption, like making you cold or tired or especially in the early days of keto when you can't efficiently efficiently mobilize that body fat from adipose tissue to to muscles. um, You you probably need to eat a little bit more fat to make sure that your uh, body has to adapt. But basically – the goal here really is to get to the point where your hunger is adequately warning you when you need energy right. and it's and your body is managing itself at a safe level. So Henry, you're right that you don't have to eat fat if you stall, but eat fat if you're hungry and if you stall, try a fast. Exactly. All right. So this is usually where we reprise about what is a ketogenic diet, but I think we just said that, didn't we? <laughs> we pretty much just went through a ketogenic diet. Yeah, so, exactly. Um so maybe we should skip on to how are we going? Yeah. So tell tell me, Carl, how are you going today? Or how have you gone this week? I'm doing really well. You know, um, I've been sort of hovering around 302, 303, you know, in the 65 pound range now for mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks. And, and I realized that my body is really defending this number. Like, or, yeah. or maybe I have a psychological, it's a psychological barrier, right? I don't know. But but I'm still in ketosis. I feel great. I you know I'm I'm probably eating a little more fathead pizza than I should, but uh, you know <laughs> later at night than I should. But uh, everything's good. I'll tell you something that happened to me that I didn't expect. Sure. I have two pairs of glasses now, mm-hmm. and I started having two pairs of glasses when I became diabetic. Right. I've always had a nearsighted astigmatism. Mm-hmm for years and years and years, and my eyesight pretty much has been unchanged. Right. And I have glasses that correct for it, and I wore my glasses all the time. But I noticed right before I was diagnosed with diabetes that, uh, oh my gosh, I, my eyesight's changing. I need to change my prescription or something. I can't see far away. Yeah. And I went to the doctor, and he gave me a new prescription, and he was telling me all about diet as well, and especially keto. He's, he's a big fan. Oh, good. But of but of course, I didn't listen, and then I got diagnosed with diabetes <laughs> and yada, yada, yada. When I went back to him after about 20 pounds and bringing my A1C down yeah, you know, in April, he said, you know, you're, you, this is going to clear up. Your, your pr- eyes are probably going to go back to where they were, and I didn't really believe him because, mm. you know, how does that happen? Your eyesight always gets worse, never better. Yeah. But it did happen. I was, uh, I was wearing my near-field glasses doing a show. Sure. And then I just forgot and left my uh, long distance glasses on the on the desk at the studio, went home and had the whole day, did the whole day. Everything was fine. And then it, <laughs> I, I went to bed, went to take off my glasses. I noticed, hey, these aren't my- You got the wrong glasses got on. Got the wrong glasses on. <laughs> now they're the same glasses. They look the same except the tips, you know, the very ends. I don't know what you call those things. Yeah, the wing tips, I guess. Wing tips. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. sort of broken off of the glasses that I use for long distance. Okay. So that's how I yeah. can tell. And I pulled these off. I'm like, what? And then I started going, and then I went outside and like looked up at the stars and I could actually see the stars as points, not as blurry splotches, which I did before with, with these glasses. Right. 
And I yeah. figured, what the heck is going on? My eyesight has, <laughs> has returned to yeah. what it was before I was diabetic. So Tim, Professor Tim Noakes, who I mentioned earlier on, he, he's, he reckons that his eyesight improved as well, his long-sighted vision improved as well. Wow. Um, and I know that when I was first diagnosed with uh, diabetes, the first symptom that I noticed, I couldn't see my computer monitor. Yeah. And I went to my doctor and said, all of a sudden, I'm, t- I'm going blind. What's going wrong? Because mm. at the time, I was working as a as a executive for a software company. So it was vitally critical that I was able to see. And he said, uh, he, he took, got me for, in for a blood test. He said, I suspect I know what's, what's wrong, but let's do a blood test anyway. It came back. He said, yep, that's what I thought. You have so much glucose in your blood that it is it is more concentrated and drawing water from other reservoirs of liquid in your body, including your eyes. So your eyeballs are distending because your blood is drawing water out to try and dilute the glucose in your blood. Absolutely fascinating. So as soon as I as soon as I address my glucose issues, my eyesight corrected itself again. Wow. So uh, yeah, it, it's 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 incredible. The eyes are really uh, one of the first places that people can tell that you're diabetic. Well, it was a pleasant surprise for me. I really didn't know what to expect. And well, I kind of knew what to expect, but I didn't really believe it would happen for some reason. And I've never experienced eyesight getting better, only worse. It's a keto miracle. It is a keto miracle. There's no two ways about it. So Richard, how are you doing? So speaking of eyesight, I actually went to an optometrist and I had uh, a full range of tests on my eyes which included looking at the back of my eyes to see if there was any vascular damage there. Mm. Now, as I mentioned, optometrists can often tell uh, if you're diabetic before uh, before your doctor knows. Mm. It's often one of the first signs because those small veins in the back of the eye, uh, that's the only place that veins of, those small veins are visible uh, in the human body without carving into somebody. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, and they looked, and there was absolutely no sign that I had ever been diabetic. Woo-hoo! So it was actually incredible. So there's so that plus the the cardiac uh, calcium test that I had the other week, mm. that plus my blood tests, there is almost no sign that I ever was diabetic. So nobody nobody could tell unless I mentioned it. And you don't take any drugs. No, I do actually. I take uh, I do I do take half a gram of metformin uh, once a day, and I don't need to do that for blood sugar but for me it helps me to uh, keep my production of blood sugar low and there are other benefits to having metformin so uh, there was an article recently on australian tv which i'll link in the show notes but uh, it talks about metformin being a a, a potentially giving people a 30 percent increase in their lifespan but do you think that's because of metformin or do you think it's because it's lowering your blood sugar which as we know can extend your life yeah, well, I don't know what the the mechanism is, but yeah. uh, it uh, it certainly sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were able to show in 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 nematodes, C. elegans nematodes, they were able to show that uh, that this was able to happen because these things have got you know short couple of day lifespans, so they can easily see uh, this kind of behaviour. So we'll, we'll see. But uh, I uh, I was quite happy to stay on metformin because it doesn't get in the way of my uh, of my blood sugar, and it just stops me overproducing in my liver, which which is convenient. Right now, you also just recently, and I think it was last night, went to some foodie event where it was a truffle yeah. and wine event, and you just said, "Screw yeah. it, this food is too good." <laughs> oh, you it know. Is. Well, and Richard, if you're going to 
cheat, you know, if you're going to eat carbs, make them count. And this is why yeah. I love you, man. I love this, this, this story. That's exactly right. So, so I was actually the MC of this truffle degustation at the National Press Club oh. in Canberra. And uh, so I was on the table of the dude who owned the farm that made that found the truffles because truffles are actually uh, locally produced in Canberra. Uh, this wow. is one of the great regions of the world for, for, for truffles. And, uh, we also had, and we also have local wines as well here. And we had a local winemaker. He was also on our table. And then the, uh, the, the uh, chef was also on my table. So, so it would have been rude not to eat his food. <laughs> well, also, come on. I mean, this is truffles. how often do you get to eat <laughs> such great food? I know. You I know? know. It was it was amazingly good. So what was the result of your blood sugar and all of that afterwards? Yeah, well that w- that's fascinating because I probably had so I I chose not to eat all of the really carby foods. So um there was one dish that had a lot of oats on the side and I didn't eat those, just ate basically just ate the meats out of, uh, from the plates um, mm-hmm. and tasted everything else just to make sure that um, everything that had truffles in, I pretty much tasted. Of course, yeah. Um, of course. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, I, there was a bread course and I, I had a, a like a quarter of a, of a slice of bread covered with truffle butter. So, um, it was probably more butter than bread. It was probably a slice of butter with a little bit of bread smeared on it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> But anyway, uh, and, but I did have, I did have the, uh, I had, had half of the dessert. So okay. um, I probably would have had maybe 200 grams of, uh, of carbohydrates. It was a big night for me. Now, the interesting thing, the previous Sunday, this was on Saturday that this truffle, truffle degustation happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had like nine courses of truffle food. So it was, wow. it was a massive feast. It was a big feast. Awesome. So the previous Sunday, I did my personal best uh, uh, endurance cycling. I did 100 kilometers. Yeah. And I was very, I was extremely low carb between, uh, between that Sunday and the truffle degustation. So I still had ext- my, my glycogen stores were, were depleted pretty much going into this event. Yeah. And so I, I didn't have my meter with me at the event. That would have been a bit. Um, rude to pull out a, yeah. <laughs> a blood glucose meter in the middle of a truffle degustation. Besides, but, you know what uh, sugar and bread do to you. You don't need a meter for yeah, that, right? Yeah, I don't need a meter for that. So I tested my blood, uh, my blood sugar after about three hours after the event, and it was four point four millimoles, which wow. is about 79, 79 milligrams. So what had happened was all of that glucose had just gone straight into my thighs and it, basically into my muscles, and was sitting there waiting to be used. Now. The problem then comes if I then go for a week without doing any exercise and uh, I don't have those uh, those muscles as a sink for glucose that I make, mm. I'll end up with high glucose over the following week and that'll keep, keep me out of ketosis. Um, but what I did today was I did a 45K bike ride and that was enough just to draw down all of that glycogen that was in my in my muscles in my stored in my muscles and in my liver mm. and before the bike before the bike event my my glucose was like 5.9 5.8 which is okay but still a bit high for me mm. after riding for 45k it was back down to 4.4 so awesome. i pretty much blew i blew through all, all of that glucose without having any effect and i'm producing ketones now so oh, um you know that's, that's so great that's, that's exactly where i wanted to get to yeah I wanted to be able to. I mean, you've got to enjoy your life, and when a truffle degustation comes along, mm. you know you need to you need some metabolic flexibility to be able to do that kind of thing, or at right. least to know the parameters by which you can do it. And for me, the parameters are go into it with depleted glycogen, 
and do some exercise the following day. Now, if you don't have a bike and you don't exercise that way and instead you walk on a treadmill or you walk or you jog or something, mm -hmm. how many hours of biking is that, you know, of, of strenuous exercise? Yeah, it, it's, it's different for everybody, but about two hours is what they say. That, that's huh. enough to totally deplete your, uh, your glycogen normally. And is that intense aerobic exercise or is that just walking on a treadmill for two hours? It depends on, it depends on the individual and it's going to be what you basically need to, to walk fast enough so that you, you can still talk, but you're slightly out of breath. So, so would you use that, uh, that calculation that we talked about on the last show to keep your heart rate at a particular rate or go above that? Yeah, you could use the Maffetone method. That would be a, a, a reasonable way of doing it. So, but it's, it, I would say that, uh, that about two hours on a treadmill before an event and then, two hours on a treadmill after the event and, and test your blood sugar and make sure that your blood sugar is going back down to Love the, it. to the area it was before the event. And then you'll know everyone's, we're all individuals. We're all unique snowflakes. Snowflakes. So. <laughs> yeah. We are. That is so great. I love that strategy. And, you know, I haven't done that. And that may be one of the reasons why, you know, I'm having these, uh, these stalls and things. Cause I did have a few lapses. What does Tim Noakes say? If you have to exercise to maintain weight, then you're on the wrong diet. Yeah, you can't well, out you can't out exercise a bad diet. Yeah, a bad diet. So, so last night was the wrong diet, but you know, I did exercise to manage my reaction to it, and uh, Love there it. we go. Well, we've come to the point in the show where we need to introduce our guest. Uh, very, very honored to have uh, Nina Tysholes here. She has written the number one science book voted by The Economist in 2014, number one science book. Let me just say that again. The Economist thought this was an amazing book. It's called The Big Fat Surprise. And uh, here she is, Nina Teicholz. Hi, Nina. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. This is a, an honor for us. We read your book uh, and delighted in every word of it. And uh, I kind I, I of start by saying what I liked about it. You talked about so much science and so many studies and cited them, which, you know, this is, you're in our wheelhouse now by doing that. That's what sure. we do here too. And you also point out the sort of the bullying and the conflicts of interest, um, you know, the, considering the sources of these studies and, and talk about how come we don't know more about this? How come, uh, you know, this um, powerful way of eating to cure ourselves of these modern diseases uh, isn't mainstream. So thank you for writing that book. <laughs> well, it was a labor of love. You know, it took nine years to um, research that book. Wow. I had to go back and, and read every single scientific study. And you just, it's, you just follow the paper trail, um, read thousands of studies to really know what went on in nutrition science. And as you say, it's not just the science, it's the politics. Yeah, it, it's the influence of industry, the politics of nutrition scientists themselves, the politics of government and the institutions like the heart associations and all of that is more informative about why we've come to the point that we are today, even than the science itself. So it's really the story of the intertwining of industry and politics and science that is so fascinating, you know, that whole and the personalities, the mm -hmm. amazingly forceful personalities that dominated yeah. this field. Ansel Keys comes to mind when I hear, think of, you know, charismatic uh, 
charismatic, people. aggressive, egotistical. I mean, he really is the father of the hypothesis that all of Western countries came to believe. He was the one who, in the 1950s, proposed this idea that saturated fat and dietary cholesterol cause heart disease. That was called the diet heart hypothesis. And it was really because of his outsized personality and his unshakable faith in his own beliefs and his uh, his um, the sheer force of his personality that he was able to get that idea implanted into the American Heart Association in 1961, which was the very first time that any health organization anywhere in the world told people to cut back on saturated fat and meat, butter, dairy, eggs, and dietary cholesterol to prevent heart disease. Um, and, you know, he was easily the most influential, important um, nutrition scientists of the last hundred years. Um, you know, at that time in 1961, there was really hardly almost no science on which to base that recommendation, but it was like the little acorn that grew into the giant oak tree of advice that we now have all over the world. Um, that, that is proving so difficult to back out of. So yeah, Ansel Keys, he was an eel physiologist, wasn't he? Pathologist and physiologist at the University of Minnesota. Right, and he he went on to develop the K rations for the U.S. Uh, military during the Second World War, and did the Minnesota starvation experiments, I believe. Right. So he, so he, Ansel Keys was a pathologist at the University of Minnesota, and he um, he had famously developed what was called the K ration for the military. K was for keys, and he was interested also in what happened um, to humans when they starved, because that was what happened during wartime, you know, and. So we did what's these called these Minnesota starvation experiments. And, um, you know, he was fascinated by what caused heart disease as well, which was, it's important to understand that at the time in the 1950s, heart disease was the number one public health emergency in the United States. It had come from pretty much out of nowhere in the 1920s to become the nation's number one leading cause of death. President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955, was out of the Oval Office for 10 days, and no one really knew what caused heart disease. So there were a number of competing ideas. Maybe it was auto exhaust, maybe it was vitamin deficiency, and it was Ansel Keys who came up with this idea of saturated fat and cholesterol, and into the vacuum of this lack of knowledge and lack of science, his, he was able to seize that space and get his idea adopted about what caused heart disease. Well, he, all the science really shows that he was wrong. I mean, there have been billions of dollars in experiments now, good randomized controlled clinical trials on more than 70,000 people in controlled mm-hmm. settings. And all of those have not been able to prove his hypothesis. And the story of why that science is not being heard or why it's failing to come to the surface is part of the politics of this. You also story. see what was happening in the 20s, right? Coca-Cola was hitting the scene. Uh, all of the, the, the grain cereals then interestingly coming out of the Minnesota area, right? That's where all of the, the, the breakfast cereals were being manufactured and put in stores and, and that sort of, you can't deny that, that our diet has, was changing at that time. Yeah. And, and, you know, the question is that, yeah, what changed in our diet from the 1920s to the 1950s to cause the increase in heart attacks? We really don't know. Yeah. Two main things were changing, which I believe are two principal suspects. One is what you say, carbohydrate based food, this 
Mm. processed carbohydrates, cereals, crackers, cookies, biscuits, you know, all of those, what became the backbone of all of our food supplies, that was starting to grow up in the economy. And also for preserving food for soldiers, World War I was happening right around that time, 1918, right? Right. So, and one of the key inventions that was for wartime was the creation of vegetable oils, hardened vegetable oils, which they yeah. w- didn't exist in the food supply before uh, the 1920s, really. But it was taking pressing oil from cotton seed, sunflower seed, safflower seed, and making that making it into an oil, which you can't eat as an oil, but then you have to harden it so you, to make it like butter, basically. Mm. And, you know, we have hardened what we call in our country Crisco, but every country has a version of hardened vegetable oils that's meant to imitate lard. And then we mm-hmm. have margarine, which is meant to imitate butter. Butter, mm-hmm. yeah. Butter and lard were the only cooking fats used, were the main cooking fats used for all of human civilization. Then come these artificial vegetable oils that have hardened through a process called hydrogenation. And the rise in their consumption perfectly parallels the rise in heart disease in the United States. And yet that's not the whole story of trans fats. Like in you, in your book you talk about how a trans fats got sort of overvilified, don't didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I'm mentioning that because when you're trying to understand what caused the increase in heart disease in the early part of the 1900s, it's possible that vegetable vegetable oils is a is a prime contender for mm. what caused <laughs> that. But uh, we really don't know what caused it is yeah. the bottom line. But then there's the whole story, which is another fascinating story of how trans fats, trans fats are created by the hydrogenation of these oils. It's part of the process. One of the byproducts is trans fats. Uh, and the story of how they became discovered in the late 19, you know, they sort of came to light in the late 1970s. And then, and then they became completely vilified to the point where they're now no longer allowed, at least in the U.S. food supply and in other countries around the world, and that is an interesting twist because it sure is. while trans fats are certainly not good for health, there's probably nothing good you can say about them. They, it's not clear that they're the killer that they've been made out to be. And, and one of the things that you see over and over again in the story of nutrition is scientists who kind of like ride to, or they ride to fame on the back of vilifying some ingredient right Right. i mean sure what we want more than anything is to have like one single killer thing that if we can just avoid that life is simple (laughs) yep people Mm -hmm. like black and white stories yeah black and white stories and it's easier to to do that than to to formulate a complex healthy diet full of this and that nutrients Mm -hmm. so there was one scientist at harvard uh named walter willett who really rose to fame crusading against trans fats, exaggerating the numbers and using very weak data, his uh, what's called observational data that can show Mm. correlation but not causation. And he really crusaded on the back of that weak data to make a name for himself over trans fats. And it's probably good that we have trans fats out of the food supply, but the, the question really is what replaces them? Because because we still fear saturated fats, we can't go back to butter and lard and tallow. Yeah. You know, McDonald's used to fry their French fries in tallow, which is- I remember eat. that. I was a kid. 
I was mm-hmm. a kid, and my mother was like horrified when she found out that they cooked their fries in beef tallow. Oh my god! <laughs> I know. Yeah, I bet you it tasted great because <laughs> mm. now they taste like you know, like a chemical Horrible. lab in a box. I yeah. mean, they taste yeah. horrible. Lard and tallow are long-lasting fats. Oh, they are. They're stable. Anything that's solid at room temperature is stable and long-lasting. And that's one of actually the unsung virtues of saturated fats because what saturated fats do is they make something solid, stable at room temperature, doesn't oxidize easily, and that's why they're so good for cooking. So for cooking, you should be using lard and tallow and butter um, because they're far more stable, ghee, coconut butter. Um, the oils are what's, are what are unstable, do not have long shelf life. Um, and that's why they were hydrogenated to make them solid, right? Mm. The reason we didn't go back to lard and tallow and suet, which is, uh, kidney fat. Yeah. Kidney fat is that they have, they contain saturated fat. And for any packaged product, the, if you have to put, oh, we have three grams of saturated fat or four grams of saturated fat, you know, consumers won't buy it. And you right. can't get health claims and they, you know, the health claims like this is a healthy food on, that you can put on a right. package that's tightly regulated. And in most countries, yep. you can't put that on a package if it has a lot of saturated fats. I also observe that um, a lot of these trans fats were in products that had a lot of carbs. So cookies and crackers, they all had trans fats in them. So it's sort of the way I feel about the whole gluten thing. You know, there's people that have genuine gluten allergies and intolerance. And then there are some that say, well, when I don't eat bread, I feel better. So I must be gluten sensitive. You know what I mean? Because it's packaged together with carbohydrates, it was probably, that must have had some effect. Well, you know, you're talking about like one of the problems in the scientific data with nutrition in general, which is that in these observational studies that show correlation, but not causation, they try to control for all those things. Like they say like, okay, junk food is correlated with heart attacks and we'll try to separate out the effects of the trans fats versus the carbs. But they really can't do that very well. They're just educated guesses. That's why you need randomized controlled clinical trials where you can separate people into groups and you can actually test cause and effect. In one group, you give junk food with no carbs and the other you give junk food only with you know with carbs and you separate out the effect of carbs right you can yeah. only do that in a randomized controlled clinical trial all the data coming out of harvard is that weak observational data so they really cannot they can't separate out the difference you know like they, they can't control for all those different factors and their database does not measure sugar so they cannot control for sugar all right so let's get back to these intersterified fats which you talk about in your book as being sort of the replacement for trans fats well there were a number of specialty oils what's called specialty oils in the jargon of the field that replaced trans fats and they what happened when they couldn't use trans fats is they had to go back into the chemistry labs and all these major food companies to try to figure out okay what are we going to do to replace them and they had a number of ideas like they they re-engineered soybeans to try to produce a different kind of soybean oil that was lower in the unstable fatty acid. And then they did something called interesterified oils, which is kind of the scariest sounding one, where they actually take the triglyceride, which comes with three fatty acids, and they rearrange the molecule, like at the molecular level. Incredible. And it's almost like, oh my God, how could we have lived without science? <laughs> you know, how could we have lived without <laughs> Intersterified fats. 
Well, I mean, the, I guess the lucky thing is that they're really expensive. It's expensive to do that. And so they're mm. not very economical. And so I don't think they're going to enter the food supply in massive amounts. But, you know, they're gradually bringing the price down and we'll see more and more of them. And that will remain until we can lift the cap on saturated fats. Because really the what we should be using is going back to natural whole fats mm. like tallow and suet and butter and, mm. you know, that's what those were made by nature and they that's what humans evolved to eat so i think that would be a healthier option nina how did all of these get into um the guidelines uh, uh for the usda and the reason i ask this is because uh, as a diabetic living in australia uh, i'm advised to eat certain food based on the Di- dietitians association of australia and they get their information from the NM and HRC, which is our version of the NIH, and they get their information pretty much from the USDA, and the USDA gets it from where? Well, from industry and captured science. (laughs) (laughs) It's depressing as an American to realize how our mistakes have been exported around the world to make everybody sick. Uh, and fat. I mean, it's one, one of the things I did last year was to take a hard look at the science behind our dietary guidelines. Um, because as a student of this science, you realize, okay, science is evolving. There are now more than a dozen meta-analyses and systematic reviews which say, conclude, saturated fats are not associated with heart disease. Saturated fats have no effect on cardiovascular mortality. And then you go look at our most recent report for the dietary guidelines by our expert scientists and it says don't eat sat- science is the same on saturated fats no change or mm-hmm. you look at something like uh low carb diet literature which now is like more than 70 clinical trials on carbohydrate restriction of some kind for uh, uh with you know looking at various metabolic diseases on altogether thousands of people sizable large body of clinical trial literature including long-term trials of two years which is the amount of time you're supposed to you know you're supposed to have a trial to see if it has any adverse effects that's right well richard is a two-year experiment and his uh, <laughs> experiment of one <laughs> yeah and his um coronary calcium score is zero he has zero yeah. placking and I had a carotid ultrasound after my doctor freaked out about my high cholesterol and I had no placking. And this is after, that was only after two and a half months. Well, that's incredibly impressive. And, you know, I mean, we all have our own anecdotal stories. And, um, you know, it's interesting in the days of Robert Atkins when he first popularized this diet and was sort of persona non grata in the American yeah. Medical Association there really was not science in his day looking at these diets. There was a very limited amount of science. And he would he would point to his drawerfuls of patient files and people like you and say, look, it works, it works. But right. those are ultimately just anecdotes. They are, yep. Since the early 2000s, there have now been dozens and dozens of clinical trials, rigorous clinical trials, including some funded by the National Institute of Health, including some that are two years in length on thousands of people. And they've shown the diet to be safe and highly effective for fighting obesity and diabetes and heart disease. So what did our expert panel for the um, our dietary guidelines do with that literature? Well, they said, we looked for it, but we couldn't find it. They didn't look hard enough. 
Okay. The dog ate my homework. <laughs> so we, we couldn't find it. And um, actually, we spaced. He's pining for the fjord. It, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's like, it's no laughing matter because it's kind of like a scientific fraud. I mean, imagine if you had a drug that cured diabetes and you withheld it from your population yeah. and, and tell them it didn't exist. So, and people, you know, are suffering on a daily basis in, with these conditions. So I actually wrote about that and said that other just extraordinary oversights of the, our, our, what was called our dietary guideline expert committee. And I, and that was published in the British medical journal in last year. And, um, some 180 scientists from around the world signed a letter asking for that that paper to be retracted. Wow. Um, which, you know, including like people from Harvard and I mean, all the top institutions. And, and we've done some Freedom of that Information Act requests and gotten some emails and, you know, just, just passed around like a chain letter, like, dear colleague, could you please sign this letter of retraction to for the British Medical Journal? And nobody that we have seen in all the email chains that we've seen, um, nobody asked a single question about the content. Like, why would, wow. what was the objection? Why were they asking for retraction? But it was simply like, how could anybody criticize our science? Right. Incredible. Egos. I, the British Medical Journal has yet to decide on that formally, but I know from them that they've, they're not going to retract the paper because there's no reason for retraction. <laughs> um, but I think it really speaks to something that I also write about in my book, which is how is it that this wrong advice has lasted for so long? Hmm. And that really comes down to two things, which is the industry influence, right? The tremendous influence of the food yeah. companies, their interest in keeping vegetable oils instead of uh, natural fats vegetable oils mm -hmm. are huge companies like ADM Monsanto Cargill you know huge multinational companies they've been deeply involved in influencing nutrition science from the very start also all those big manufactured food companies that make carbohydrate based foods that we talked about cookies crackers cereals i mean the backbone of the food supply the drug pharmaceutical companies also they're making millions and billions of dollars on these from drugs. people being sick, and some of these yeah. these companies are vertically integrated, so that they make oh. the sugary, carb laden foods that make you sick, and then they profit from the drugs that you must take when you are sick. So some of them, like Nestle, is involved, and they're perfectly integrated for the makings <laughs> for the <laughs> metabolically sick person. Wow, which is really depressing. Um, so the food companies are one factor keeping this bad dietary advice in place because they benefit from it. And the other is the investment by um, professional nutrition scientists and all the institutions that they inhabit, like the, all the professional associations, like the American Heart Association, which has been in it from the start, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States, hmm. and the American Diabetes Association and all the other medical associations who have thrown in their hat with this dietary advice, including the U.S. government, all the government agencies, all the WHO, FAO, all these agencies around the world have all thrown in their hat with this idea that saturated fat and dietary cholesterol are bad for health, although now they're backing off the cholesterol advice. And the politics of that are just fascinating. I mean, how do they keep opposing viewpoints from being heard? Well, one thing they do is what 
our committee did was they deny the science exists. They simply deny it. They say, we can't find it. Or there's this phenomenon called silent studies where a study will come out and this has been happening since the 50s and 60s and they will simply ignore it. So for instance, um, the Minnesota Coronary Survey, the largest ever t- test of Ansel Keys's hypothesis on um, 9,000 men and women for four and a half years testing his hypothesis. At the end of that, their results were there's no effect of saturated fat on heart disease. Wow. And they didn't publish that study for 16 years. They basically confirmed they confirmed the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis, exactly. And can we explain the null hypothesis for the layman? Yeah, it basically means it 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 tells you that 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 the hypo- that you can't confirm the hypothesis. Right? right? You cannot confirm Ansel Keys's hypothesis. You confirm the opposite, which is that it's right. untrue. And if you can't find correlation, then that proves non-causation. You can't find this. So this was a clinical trial. So it could, so it's the most rigorous kind of study you can do. And it was done in mental hospitals, which were controlled environments. That means they could control all the food. It's a far more reliable kind of experiment than when you just give somebody a diet book and say, right. you know, try to stick to it. This is, they're actually providing the food to people. So they didn't publish the results of that study for 16 years. And when one of, so one of the principal investigators was Ansel Keys. When another, when his colleague was asked years later, why did you not publish the results of that study? He said, well, we were just so disappointed with the way it turned out. Wow. That is an admission of failure. A fraud. And fraud. Yeah. It's this, the scientific term for it is like selection bias, where you select yes. out the data that supports your hypothesis and you ignore the data that doesn't support it. And this is yeah. like an extreme example of selection bias where the study leaders deny and ignore their own study. Mm. And so you just see that happening again and again and again. I mean, and then I'll just tell you one other thing that happens in the politics of this field, which is that there's an active like smearing and name calling and, and vicious politics trying to denigrate any critic of um, of, of the hypothesis. So, you know, getting people disinvited from expert panels, literally calling them names, um, denigrating their work. My book is full of examples of this, of, you know, people losing their research grants. This actually happened to you, didn't it? You were disinvited from a panel that you were meant to be on. Yeah. Because the CSPI got involved and. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I wrote about it and now I live it. Um, which is, you know, literally I'm, there's, you know, a, a researcher at Yale who calls me names to journalists. Um, so the name calling, and then I was supposed to be on this prestigious panel of a major food policy conference in Washington, DC. And then when the other panelists, um, they included a USDA official, which is the agency that puts out our dietary guidelines and a member of, um, basically the main public supposedly public interest group that defends the guidelines called CSPI. Um, and, um, they got together and, Oh, and somebody who had been on the dietary guideline committee that I had criticized and they got together and they said, we all refuse to serve on this panel if Nina is on it. And so they kicked me off. And then, um, a, a, friend sort of a fan in Ireland started a petition to get me reinstated and 4,500 people signed that petition in the course of one week. Including me, including me. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yes, I did. Yeah, Yeah. me too. Thank you. Well, 
unfortunately it didn't work. I didn't get reinvited back on, but I think it shows, um, that there's such a fear even of debate, you know, because, and this is what I've experienced since my book came out. You know, I was so nervous when my book came out because it was so, I knew it was going to be hugely controversial, but in Mm -hmm. fact, what you find is that there really are no arguments. There are no good arguments against, uh, to make. And so you cite the science, anybody can fact check you and they will come up with exactly what you found. The science is so clear. So the only tactic really of defense is simply not to allow it to be heard that you have to silence it through retraction or you silence it through not letting me speak or not. And I mean, this is how, this is the only tactic left, I think to those who are defending these guidelines. Just to say, no, it's not, that's not right. And that's it. It's it's sort of like Donald Trump yeah. politics, you know? Yeah. See, that's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. You're going to die. Trust me. Believe me. You're a loser. Oh, yeah. That's a great argument, <laughs> Mr. Trump. Yeah. You're a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. One of the things I think is, is starting to change is I've got this Credit Suisse report, which uh, uh, I got actually a hard copy sent out to me, and, and they basically – came out and, and confirmed everything that you said in your book, uh, the saturated fat is fine. And a lot of their uh, investment customers will be redirecting their investments towards companies that are building plants for mm-hmm. this new milieu, you know, so or this new environment. And so what's going to happen is we're going to start to see investment switching over away from seed oils and um, and carbohydrate sure. um, heavy foods and towards um, foods that, that that are more appropriate for human lifestyle so because there's plenty of money in in uh, supporting the ketogenic uh, lifestyle there's plenty of money in it it's just uh, it's going to take certain products going away and new products coming in that's all I think the guidelines all of our government guidelines are crucially important in that shift though and i'll tell you why i mean people can make their own decisions for their own lives mm-hmm. and that certainly the market driven change will create a lot of change but it's not nearly enough and i'll tell you why because the guidelines determine what doctors are told to tell people what dietitians nutritionists all those groups their their nutritional advice is key to the guidelines Mm-hmm. There are cases around the world of, of nutritionists, dietitians being sued or being thrown out of their professional organizations, unable to practice if they give different advice. All of that yeah. is very powerful. So all the people on the front lines are required to deliver low-fat, high-carb advice, even to diabetics, for whom that will only make them worse. In our country, there are a number of feeding programs that are keyed depend upon the dietary guidelines. So everything that's fed to the kids in schools, school lunches, this is common in other countries oh, too. Yeah. All your school lunches, what's fed in hospitals, nursing homes, to your military, um, to the elderly. I mean, all of that is keyed to the government guidelines. Um, what goes on your package labeling, what kinds of healthy claims can be made in your foods. And, and so Changing the food supply really will require changing the government guidelines. And that's why I've become focused on trying to call out where the science is lacking in those guidelines because they so desperately need to change. I mean, and I think they will change. I think it'll happen sooner than we think. Like Canada 
Canada actually got rid of their caps on saturated fats last year, which they wow. were very quiet about, but they didn't. Mm. Did they also do anything to make people aware of, um, well, shall we say just, you know, being low carb as well as high fat? I mean, you, you sort of, if you eat a carby lifestyle and you had saturated fat because it's more calorically dense, it, it will tend to get stored. It's really only if you can lower your uh, carb intake to the point where your insulin starts going down and, and your liver starts working for you again that, uh, you know, can you speak to that a little bit? Because they sort of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, um, if saturated fats have any adverse effects and I'm not sure that they do, I think the science is a little equivocal. It's only in the presence of a high carb diet. Right. And if you have to choose between saturated fats and carbohydrates, you need to choose saturated fats. I totally agree. It's clear that maintaining a high carb diet is pretty he much healthy for a very few very minority of the population can really tolerate that and be healthy. Yeah, they have to be very active and, and not eat a lot and all of that. Or maybe it's, a, you know, some carbs, uh, you know, the kind of carbohydrates that we eat are all um, very different than a hundred mm. years ago. I mean, the way that wheat is treated and I mean, the kinds yeah. of carbs that we have are mostly refined and unhealthy and not, you know, it's, we don't have freshly ground wheat bread. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's probably true that, that, that carbs used to be healthier and maybe we could have tolerated them better than we do now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's very clear, like a high carb diet is, is really unhealthy for the majority of people. Now, the majority of people being overweight or diabetic or have, you know, on the route to getting heart disease, some kind of metabolic dysfunction. There's one more thing that I want to bring up, and I saw somebody bring it up on a, on a at a talk you did, and uh, and that is uh, veganism. There's a lot of vegans that have at least short term good results with a vegan diet, um, but from what I understand, the science shows that over a longer period of time, um, you know, the same old sort of carb high carbohydrate problems creep in. Do you know of any studies that? that uh, talk about that so um, that. highly controversial topic <laughs> <laughs> yep exactly that's why i brought it up <laughs> and go <laughs> first it's important to say that many people are vegan for reasons that have nothing to do with nutrition and i think right. i respect that i think there are many reasons to eat the way you do so it, i'm yeah. just going to talk about the nutritional impact about whether or not it's good for your health a vegan diet is, um, it's very hard to be healthy on that diet. In animal experiments, it tends to shorten lives because it's, um, by definition, nutritionally insufficient. So you cannot get certain nutrients, notably um, B12, the iron you get is less bioavailable, choline, folate are less available or not available in a vegan diet. So you have to be extremely careful about supplementation on that diet. And even then, supplements are not as bioavailable as they are in natural foods. So there's the problem of nutritional insufficiency, which is worrisome for a vegan diet. Um, you can do better on a vegetarian diet. The other problem is that a vegan diet is almost inevitably, unless you're very careful, a high carb diet because plants are mostly carbohydrates. Um, and so you will, it's, it's hard to, um, for people who 
have any kind of metabolic condition, it's hard to stay healthy on that diet. There are no clinical trials of a vegan diet. So really? the proof of its safety and efficacy does not exist. There are some clinical trials of the Dean Ornish diet, which is a nearly vegan diet. And on that diet, um, it seemed to show some, as you said, people seem to, to, they see weight loss on that diet. And that is, I would hypothesize because on any kind of diet where you get rid of processed, refined carbs, sugar, yeah. and you go to a whole foods, any kind of, you know, shift towards whole real foods improves and benefits health, um, mm -hmm. no matter what those foods are, whether they're plant or animal foods. However, over the course of time, people on that diet see their HDL go down and often that's the good cholesterol dropping and often their mm -hmm. triglycerides go up and both of those are negative cardiovascular results, um, yeah. implying that their risk of heart attack goes up on that diet. So those are the things that worry me about a, a vegan diet. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's not safe for children who really have much greater nutritional needs as they grow and they, yeah. they really need more fat in their diet. Um, and I think, you know, for cute, for older people, like, you know, you do store nutrients in your body, so you don't see the effects over in you know, your body is efficient about that because it knows that it may not get all the nutrients it needs over time. But what happens is, is people, as they deplete those nutrient stores in their body, they start to see negative effects, you know, two, mm -hmm. three years down the line, and they start to have all kinds of health conditions um, that weren't apparent early on. But it is anecdotal. Like you said, there isn't any real science one way or the other. Uh, we Every once in a while, we get somebody in our Facebook group or somebody sends us an email that says, you know, I'm vegan and I want to do this ketogenic thing because it's wonderful, but what? how can I do it? So they, these are people who want to find a vegan ketogenic way of eating, and we really don't know what to tell them. I, I you don't. You have to have a lot of coconut oil. Um, you know, it's hard. There's just not that much to make your meals out of. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of nuts and seeds in order to get the fat. See, most fat comes from animal food. Natural fat comes from animal foods. If you're not getting it from animal foods, what are the plant-based sources? Well, nuts, seeds, avocados, and coconut oil. So you're having a lot of those foods. Well, nuts and seeds are really high in carbs. So then you're increasing your carbs a lot. So, you know, it, it's hard to get just the right balance. I think it's a lot of coconut oil. Yeah. You know, but then you aren't getting the iron, the folate, the selenium, the zinc. I mean, it's just, it's hard. It's much harder. Mm. So whereas if you have a piece of beef liver, which is the most nutrient dense food on the planet, you just wow. get everything you need and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> right. It's too bad. I hate liver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why I need supplements. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have, a, I can send you a blog post. I hate liver too, but I think it's so crucial that I, yeah. I have a, I can send you this great link to a blog post and like how to eat liver without tasting the liver. You know, you have to sneak it into your meatballs or your stews or this or that, or, you know, there's ways to do it. It's interesting that you said sneaking food in. Um, I have two stories. One is I actually like liver worst and chopped liver. I've had both of those and I can tolerate that, but I, I don't know. There's maybe chicken liver in, in that stuff. But, um, the other one is, um, uh, somebody in my life who shall remain nameless, um, was, was going keto and feeling really bad and couldn't swallow pills and needed to take 
you know, potassium, magnesium, calcium, because this person's electrolytes were way out. And, and you could sort of tell by the way they were feeling and acting. And they couldn't swallow pills. And uh, this was before I discovered a sugar-free Powerade that has potassium. And I don't think it has magnesium, though, but it has sodium potassium. Anyway... Uh, I found these magnesium, potassium, calcium pills that are essentially just held together powder, put them in a mortar and pestle and added it to taco meat (laughs) 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 and added a little butter to get rid of the chalkiness. Yeah. Mineral fortified taco meat. (laughs) And this person was like, oh, this is really good. And after they were done, I said, yeah, guess what? That was chock full of magnesium, (laughs) potassium. Great. Great. I didn't even taste it. So sneaking it in is good. Sneaking policy. it in. You what do you have to do? You ground up the freeze and ground up the liver and stick it in meatballs. That's what I do to my kids. And they <laughs> still good. haven't figured it out. Incredible. I I know when I was a child, apparently my uh, my favorite food was lamb brains. And I just cannot imagine what? eating lamb brains right now. But when you think about it as a child, one of the organs that's growing the fastest is your brain. Not necessarily that you eat brains to grow brains, but there's a lot <laughs> of the raw materials that you're gonna to use to make your to build your own brain are going to be in uh, the brains of other animals. So it kind of makes sense, but I don't eat a lot of offal now. <laughs> I want to say that I did pass off brains as chicken to my children successfully. Whoa. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs> I'll tell you, it is hard. You know, that's a whole other subject, which is that all the foods that we used to, all the offal that, you know, mm. it now we think is so awful. Um, but <laughs> awful, we, awful. You know, brains, Every part of the animal, you know, eyes, liver, intestines. I mean, we think it's so disgusting now because we've lost the habit of eating them, but there's, they're tremendously nutrient dense. And, you know, that's, those are the foods that were preferred. If you look at what animals do, you know, a lion goes after the viscera and eats the, leaves the meat for Mm -hmm. the vultures. Yeah, mm. the hyena. Yeah. The hyena. So we, you know, we can't stomach that anymore, but I, but I, I do try to, imagine getting back to that kind of diet yeah. right I, I i think for me I, I make a lot of bone broths and that and and i throw everything else in there so you know i'm getting i'm still getting the the nutrition out of it i just don't have to look at it too closely that's a really good idea well i, I think we're just about out of time so nina ty Scholes, it's been wow mind-blowingly awesome talking to you I, what can i say thank you such a pleasure It's really great talking to you both. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Well, that was awesome, Carl. Yeah. How cool. Nina has left the building, kids. There's nothing to see here. Okay, well, there actually is. Yeah, we, we still have a job to do. Right, and you know what that means. Recipes! Recipes! Recipes. 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 <laughs> uh, awesome. So I'm, I'm going to go first, Carl, because I have the perfect recipe to have on a show with Nina Tysholz. All right. And that is a recipe making bacon. Making bacon. <laughs> making bacon. You warned us about this in the last show, and I can't wait to hear how you did it. Yeah, so you probably know that in the last show I had a recipe with some uh, roast pork belly. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And I'd cut uh, the piece of pork belly. I cut a one kilo slab off from a big four kilogram slab of uh, like eight or maybe nine pound slab of uh, of pork belly that Ooh. we bought from Costco. Ooh. Really fatty. You, you, when you when you go looking at pork belly, wait wait until they ha- until you see that they've got got them with skins on because most times they they pull the skins off and they render them into gelatin or. Mm. Put, you know, pork rinds or whatever. But when you see that they have them with the skin on, that's when they're ideal for, for making uh, both baked uh, pork belly and making bacon. There's nothing better than braised pork belly, is there? Really? Uh, br- br- oh. Bacon's pretty good, though. Bacon's pretty good, though, yeah. <laughs> I, I would put bacon up there. Okay. Um, but there, <laughs> but so, so what I did was I, I – I had a big four kilo slab of of skin on pork belly from Costco. Yeah, and I carved off two one point five kilo slabs of pork belly, and one I cured with a pepper rub, and one I cured with a uh, plain rub. And uh, I'll tell you how I did that, but I'm going to skip to the end and just say. This bacon was so good that I don't think I'm ever going to buy rashes of bacon ever again. Wow. So easy to make and it's, it is so nice. So, so by the so, way, um, yeah. citing your success with bacon, I asked Kelly for a smoker for my birthday, which is coming up oh, in August. Good. Mm. Awesome. So, so I use the smoker to impart a smoky flavor to the bacon. You don't need to do that. It's an optional step. But who but doesn't like smoky some- bacon? Oh, yeah. Come on. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the process is uh, – t- and, and I'll put a link to my, my blog, uh, which has got all the details of how to make bacon. Yeah. So, so you start off with a kilo and a half of pork belly. Uh, with a skin on, and you want a tray that fits your kilo and a half of pork belly, and uh, and you can buy you can buy the trays from Costco, <laughs> okay. and uh, they're perfect perfect size for it. So, to a kilo and a half of pork belly, you want about three tablespoons of salt, and you want about four grams of a thing called Prague powder number one. It's also known as curing salts number one or pink salts, and you basically, you're going to use two and a half grams of this stuff per kilo of meat. Mm. And so what you do is you mix the salt and the Prague powders together, and then you mix your flavor with that, and you rub it into the pork. So this is a dry rub. It's not a brine or anything. This is not a brine. No, this is a dry rub. But a lot of liquid will come out of the pork, so it will end up being a brine at the bottom. So basically you uh, start out with washing off your pork belly, pat it dry with a paper towel and uh, cut it to size to fit in your curing tray. And then you you rub the spices into it and you make sure that you get into all of the nooks and crannies. So if during the process – of uh, trimming the meat, they've sort of left a couple of nice shears in there. Get your fingers in there and get the get the salts in there. So you want the thing fully salted. And what curing does is it removes the bacteria, doesn't it? It kills the bacteria, yeah, and it prevents it getting back. So yeah, yeah. So it basically sets up a barrier for a bunch of really nasty bacteria like Listeria and yeah. Giardia and 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 uh, E. coli and a bunch of other bacteria that can that can that love right. to live on things like meat. And this has been a way that humans have preserved meat for years and years and years and years. Yeah, it probably was the first use of salt, yeah. um, which, as we know, became a currency virtually. That and fermentation, yeah. And fermentation, sure. So um, so once you've got your pork belly that is well-coated with the salts, 
you want to cover it with some cling film, put it in the fridge for a week, and every day you, you want to flip it so that that liquid that goes to the bottom coats both sides of your pork belly. And then what you, what I did was I smoked it for uh, about 30 minutes in a hot smoker. So I, I basically, I, I pull the tray out of the fridge that's been curing for a week. I wash the meat off. I rinse, I, I pat, pat it dry with a paper towel. And then I, uh, put, put it skin side down in a fresh tray and smoke the meat in a hot smoker. It's just weird to me that you only smoke it for 30 minutes. I'm good friends, obviously, with the other Richard, Richard Campbell, who yeah. from, from Vancouver, who does a lot of smoking of ribs and things like that and briskets mm. and stuff. And it's always low and slow smoking. But I guess he's not only smoking it, but cooking it, right? Yeah, that's right. I don't want to cook it here. I, what I want to do is I want to get smoke flavor into like the, the outside, yeah. maybe half a centimeter, centimeter of, uh, of the surface area. Um, but the, uh, the, my hot smoker is just a little bit too hot for the process that I want. So can you use a cold smoker too? You, yeah, absolutely. You can use a coal smoker. Like a smoke gun? Absolutely. In fact, I bought myself one of those two weeks ago and I've just been smoking all the things. <laughs> it's funny. A smoking gun. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And yeah. it's just, it just looks like a kitchen bong. Yeah. <laughs> don't do drugs, kids. So, yeah, don't do drugs. Um, so we've cured it, we've smoked it, we've given it some flavors, and now you want to cook it. Yeah. And you want to, you want to stick some thermometers in it because you want to get the internal temperature to be 65 Celsius or 150 Fahrenheit. So I put it in an oven, a 95 Celsius or 200 Fahrenheit oven, uh, for about two hours. Which is really low. And all you're really doing is, again, making sure that there's no way there's any bacteria that's going to live. Yeah, that's right. Basically cooking the meat, you, yeah. you're dehydrating it as well, and so, so once you've done that, you now have bacon. We can now no longer call it pork belly. We can now give it its proper name, which is bacon. Bacon, and you slice it and <laughs> fry it just like you do with any other bacon, right? Absolutely. Oh. And you know, I use a kitchen slicer, and I slice it into thin rashes. And once you get it to, once you get it cool, it gets hard and so it becomes very easy to make thin slices but you know so if you want to make thick slices it's your bacon and you make the rules oh my god richard mm. i i don't think i can continue that's just like <laughs> i want to hop a plane come to australia and taste that stuff right now yeah i've got it up on my website so uh um I'm not sure that I can ship you any but i can no, no, no. certainly show you how to make your own well and i plan on doing that as well yeah so so what recipe have you got for us today, Carl? This recipe is so good, you can serve it to anybody, anybody, keto, non-keto, um, okay, maybe not vegetarians, but uh, <laughs> you can serve it to any anybody you like, and they will be convinced that it's better than the original. And what I'm talking about, nice. kids, is tacos. Ooh. Tacos. Tacos. But tacos are made with corn, right? Well, that's just the shell, but guess what you make the shells with? What? Cheese. No. Cheese. <laughs> you know from our cheese crisps that we make that if you bake little rounds of shredded cheese in the oven on parchment paper at 300 degrees for about 10 minutes or so, they turn into these potato chippy, lovely, wonderful things, but they still have a little give to them. And this is what I like about cheese shells is that they're crispy around the edges mm -hmm. and you can bend them and they don't fall apart when you bite into them like taco shells do. You know the problem right. with taco shells yeah, is yeah. you take one bite and it yeah. explodes all over. Shatters, yeah. Yeah, it shatters. shatters. In your face. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I could get some corn flavoring or something that I can put in there. But no, you don't need it. I'm telling you. Cheese tastes better than corn. Cheese tastes better than corn. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I fed these to my wife, my children, and they loved them Mm. so much so that they were like, I will eat this anytime, anywhere, any day. Don't ever want to have regular tacos again. So (laughs) here's what you need. To do the shells, you're going to set up a little contraption so that uh, you can bend them. And it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to have a contraption. You can have some kind of dowel or something, even a knife or something, and just bend them over because they're not going to break when you bend them. It's not like, right. it's not like uh, rigid shells. But you just basically make the cheese crisps and the cheese that I use is just a four cheese Mexican blend that I got from the supermarket. So you don't have to use Asiago or anything? No, you don't have to use Asiago. Mm. Some cheeses will work better than others. I found that Mm. if I use Monterey Jack, it didn't really crisp up all that much. But if Mm. you use something with a little cheddar in it and a little taco seasoning and a little, uh, maybe a little Monterey Jack in there just to to blend it, Mm. uh, then they come out really, really good. So the cheese that I bought was from the store. It did have a little potato starch in it, but when you calculate all the carbs, they're they're so incidental, it didn't bother me. Yeah. All right. So you put those in the oven, you make them a little bit bigger, you know, then- the cheese crisps, you want them to be, I don't know. So about six inches or so. Yeah, about six inches, right? So I can fit three of those on one cookie sheet with parchment paper down on it. 300 degrees, about 10 minutes. Maybe mine went to about 15 minutes because I want them nice brown and crispy. Mm-hmm. Right? Nice. And then you fold them over. Now let's talk about taco meat. Sure. Now- as you know, Richard, I have confessed to going to Taco Bell at three in the morning. Yeah, I know. Taco Bell is your thing. <laughs> well, it, it has been, uh, once anyway, and uh, all fast food was really a staple of mine for many, many years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, but I'm going to tell you how to make uh, taco meat without using any off-the-shelf taco mix and putting your ketosis in jeopardy. Cool. You want to get one to two pounds of ground beef. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, you want to get some seasonings, chili powder, cumin, salt, onion powder, garlic powder. Optionally, I use a little cinnamon. Mm, cinnamon. Yep. You wouldn't expect it, but a wow. dash of cinnamon yeah. really, really yeah. brings it out. A little smoked paprika, optionally, if you like that smoky flavor. Yeah. And if you like heat, you know, some red pepper flakes or some cayenne or something like that, up to you. And I purposely left off the ratios and how much to put in because it's all to taste. Sure. Yeah. Everybody has a different taste. My wife, for example, doesn't like it hot. Yeah. I do. So we find a happy medium where how much chili to use and how much uh, pepper to use. So you're going to pretty much cook the meat first before you put the spices in so you can taste it. You it's got going to be cooked it. meat. So you can taste it as you go. You got it. Um, and you can fine tune it in to yeah, dial it in. Absolutely dial it in. And you're just going to find you're adding a little more and a little more and a little more until you get it perfect. I cook the, mm. the beef in about two tablespoons of butter. Right. Because I want it moist and delicious. Can. And I can. <laughs> That's right. Um, you're also going to want to add about a quarter of a cup to a half a cup of tomato sauce. And we use Rouse because it's four sure. carbs net per quarter cup or something like that. Mm. But I found even like Hunt's tomato sauce is about the same. Yeah. It's, it's really okay. not all that bad. So 
Put in a little bit if you like. Find your favorite. Just be careful not to put in too much. And that's it. So you cook the meat and the butter, you brown it, add your seasonings, keep cooking it, get it all perfect. Add the tomato sauce to give it some moisture and some more flavor. Taste it, put it aside. Now for garnish, it's up to you, whatever you like. Um, I like cheese. I like chopped lettuce. I like chopped tomato. I like sour cream. I like guacamole. I even like a little hot sauce. Got to be careful of sugar and hot sauce too. There's a little bit. That's true. Sometimes. Surprising amount sometimes, yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's it. Enjoy. Keto tacos. So that taco recipe sounds awesome, Carl. I think I might have to try that for myself. But before we go, we've actually got some news. Yes, we do. We have been talking about making T-shirts for our fans yes, we have. that say stuff like, show me the science and keep calm and keto on. And we've done it. We've done it. So if you go to gear.2keto.com, That'll bring you to our online store at Teespring, where we've created some t-shirts, both for men and for women. And we've also created some, uh, some tank tops for women. And if you have any other styles that you would like to see, hoodies or whatever, just let us know and we'll add those to our store. Yeah, we've. Uh, I've already ordered my own Show Me the Science T-shirt that I intend to wear to my doctor's ah. <laughs> appointments. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, she's going to get used to me wearing that. <laughs> yep. So gear Awesome. So, uh, of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute what we've said. Send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on their website or come and join us on the Facebook group, fb.twoketo.com. And if you listen to us on iTunes and you like it, go to iTunes and leave a review and leave a comment and tell us how we're doing because it's those reviews on iTunes that give us the status in the search. That's right. And so then more people and more people can be exposed to this way of eating uh, we think it's worthwhile. And thank you in advance for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, my friend. Keep calm, keto on, and show me the science. <laughs> <laughs> show me the science. That's right. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. <laughs>